This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. We're recording this about three days after the website was launched, and people seem to love the website, and quite right too, because it was plainly a labour of not just love, but also labour. Well, I mean, <laughs> and I think we've, we've publicly thanked, and should again, Joe Hodgson, who did a lot of the listening to and, and, and making of the notes. Joe, Joe will never hear this, because my <laughs> God, he doesn't want to listen to me and you talk any more than he's had to already. God almighty. But yeah. Joe, if you are listening, thanks ever so much. What a brilliant job! Yeah, you it did. was. I mean, I think it was a six-week, um, six weeks it took him, which is you know, that's a lot to yeah, listen to. We've, we've got to load up our events this week. That's um, that's. The, I know, it, um, and it was amusing for for twelve hours. There were the Andy to write in the FAQ. Well, I was going to say right, eagle-eyed website visitors spotted. They, I wasn't asked to do very much for the website. I was asked to answer two questions, but failed to hit my deadline which is the story of my creative andy to write is the story of my creative life but you know if you do see those two answers now they are good <laughs> they are like they were well worth waiting and also john what do you think about being confronted with the track record of yeah. two and a half years i actually found quite unsettling the thing is you realize that you have read quite a lot <laughs> yeah, but also, no 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 the thing it made me think was i kept seeing references to Things that I don't remember anyone yeah, mentioning, yes, yes, right? And then I was thinking, what there should be is there should be a cross-referencing. Uh, Joe, if you're listening, you can go back and do it all again. There should be cross-referencing between stories that we've told more than once, <laughs> where you can hear alternative versions of the same anecdote. Yeah. Because God knows everybody, they've captured like 70 hours of you and me quacking on now. Yeah. It's quite hard to talk for 70 hours without repeating some of your best material. I believe you'd position them as um, you know, shared motifs. Ah, uh, that's right, to, okay, to yeah. Finding the whole yeah. William Goldman, which lie did I tell? That's, <laughs> that's, but obviously, uh, very, very happy for people to use it and, um, you know, go on there. And the, I mean, I think we should say that the way we've set it up is that the links for the books, if you buy your books through the website, we get some money, which is nice. But also, you're, you can, uh, through Hive, you can nominate a local independent bookseller to support as well. I mean, you know, you're not going to get quite the discounts that you get from Amazon, but we sort of felt it would be not in the spirit of backlisted for us not to try and do something that supported. I, I just wish all the book orders were routed through a small <laughs> second-hand bookseller in Hay on Wye, who was suddenly overwhelmed with yes. de demands for copies of All the Devil's Work. <laughs> like the old Waterstones mail order department. <laughs> Where was that? was based in Bath, um, yeah. Bath was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah Bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, um, we, well, you made the great story about God, this will sound quaint to anybody who doesn't know, but before the, the interweb, Waterstones, one of the, uh, well, its early services was a out-of-print book search oh, service. And, okay. and they, you know the time that Jonathan Tutel, the amazing Jonathan Tutel, used to quote? 
he would say it would be a minimum of three months. <laughs> If he got back to you at all, he was amazing, and he would advertise in all the various journals and and see which dealers came back, and then he would haggle for a price. I mean, the, the basic, the, the basic the, mail the, you order. You know what? Was, I bet, but I bet you weren't paying as much as you would pay now in some cases because the internet, as we know, creates a scenario where it only takes two people anywhere in the world to want the same book, and the price can be, yeah, you know. Not artificially inflated, but the market will set the price. Well, anyway, yes. So you can get, you can order books, and you you can uh, you get a t-shirt and a, and a backlisted mug as well if you if you if you so desire. If your life feels incomplete without them, don't run down the merch. No, I'm not. I don't down run down the merch. You've got a I've t-shirt got there. Master, I've got my master storyteller. I'm looking at it enviously, hankering after one immediately. Excellent. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in three places at once. A seaside hotel room in Brittany watching a man paint with demented energy. In the cockpit of a spitfire soaring above the grey waves of the English Channel. And standing silently on a bitter Moscow autumn morning watching a man help carry the coffin of his friend, the disgraced spy Guy Burgess. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. Uh, I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Rishi Dastadar, a poet and copywriter whose first collection, Ticker Tape, was recently published by Nine Arches Press. And Rishi is also chair of the London writers' charity Spread the Word, consultant editor at the independent poetry magazine The Rialto, and a fellow of the Complete Works 2, a programme that promotes quality and diversity in British poetry. I am all of those things. You are. You, are, you have a portfolio. I, I believe, yes, that's what it's called now, a portfolio, a portfolio. career. <laughs> Anyway, the book that Rishi's joining us to talk about today is The Fatal Englishman, Three Short Lives by um, Sebastian Folks. Um, it was, it's a, a biography of three English men, and it was first published in 1996. And it is Sebastian Folks' only work of non-fiction. of non-fiction. We will discuss why that might be and the ramifications of that when we get on to the main book. We will. I think it's worth saying sometimes when you say Sebastian Folks, you say, oh, well, I thought that listed was about people you never heard of. And you say, well... It's about books that are less well, perhaps less often regarded. And Sebastian Folks obviously is, is a, a major best-selling contemporary English writer. But this book, and we'll go on and discuss why, is, I would say, pretty, pretty easily his, his, his least often discussed. Yeah, and I've got some interesting theories, theories as theories, to why that theories. might be. Well, listen, but before that, before we pin down the butterfly soul of Englishness, <laughs> we welcome back this episode's sponsor, Spoke, the ultra-cool online menswear company. Spoke designed trousers with a difference, ones that fit you and not the other way around. They have a wonderful online fit finder. Enter a few simple data details and under a minute, you'll have the perfect fit. You can choose from almost 200 different size combinations. They obsess over every single detail, fabric, lining, fasteners to the wash. So ordering from Spoke is like going to your own tailor, but without the hassle or expense or that sort of standing around with men with tape measures kind of asking you on which side do you hang and such forth. With Spoke, you get sharp, personalised design delivered in just two working days. And I can tell you well, that I, this I is true. Well, I something different about you this week, John. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that. I am wearing a pair of olive spoke. I mean, I, 
I guess you'd call them chinos, but actually they're much nicer than that. They're sort of slightly crinklier and louder. The material mm. is great. They've got fabulous. The inside uh, trimmings are all are all in orange, and it came. It came, Andy. I, I annoyingly left this in my coat. It came with a, a lovely little tag with a Kurt Vonnegut quote in it. And oh, you, really? So the point about Spoke is we have a deal for you, as you know, as a backlisted listener. If you go to www.spoke-london.com. The link is obviously on the backlisted FM website. And place an order. You'll get £20 off your first order. Just use the code BACKLISTED20. Now, brilliantly, I ordered my spoke trousers and forgot to put the code <laughs> in. <laughs> so, I, listeners, I paid full price and I'm, I feel they were excellent value. But you, if you could just follow simple instructions, <laughs> I self-evidently can't, you'll get money off, oh, which is lovely. Anyway. From neat creases yes. to messy realities, All right. Andy, what have you been reading? So I'm going to talk a bit more. I mentioned I was reading uh, the first of these books uh, a few weeks ago, but I have been reading the Patrick Melrose novels of Edward St. Aubin with huge pleasure. I've managed to read four of them in a fortnight. Wow. Because I wanted to, listeners, and because I was enjoying them. <laughs> I was reading for pleasure. As I've said, that occurs occasionally, but when it does, it's absolutely marvellous. These books have been adapted for TV. They're going to be on Sky later in the month in May. Ten hour-long episodes, all five novels, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. And this is why you wanted to get your reading in first. I knew what would happen was that I would not be able to watch the TV because I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to see the TV if I hadn't already read the books. So I read the first one which is called Nevermind in March, yes, in March, sort of speculatively, and I really enjoyed it. And then I thought, okay, well what I'll do is I'll kind of sprinkle the remaining volumes through the the next six weeks or so. What actually happened is I read uh, the second one and then just thought, oh, you know what, I can, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an autonomous individual. I'll just read the rest of them. So they are absolutely wonderful. They are a fantastic combination of deeply distressing and extremely funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that is quite a trick to pull off. And I was trying to explain to somebody yesterday that the, what the glue that holds it together is the sheer talent of the person writing the book. Yeah. I think in a lesser writer would not be able to pull this off. And I read a very interesting interview with Edward St. Aubin where he, you know, these novels are extremely autobiographical, extremely dark in places, and full of awful people. <laughs> Terrible toffs doing appalling things, all of whom speak with the most magnificent levels of wit and esprit de scalier. Yeah. And I, in the interview with him, it was put to him that these people speak impossibly cleverly and amusingly. And he said, the thing is, because so much of the books are based on what really happened to me, I had spent years rehearsing the things that I ought to have said and other people ought to have said to me. So it's a whole sort of esprit d'escalier kind of uh, yeah. revenge. And I thought I would allow myself and them the true fictionalisation of giving them one wonderful line after another. And I'm going to read a little bit from Volume 3, Some Hope. 
And I, again, I'm trying to, I don't want to give away any of the big plot developments in the books. So I'm concentrating slightly on the dialogue here. But what you need to know about these books is that they were, the first one I think was published about 20 years ago. The first three were published in quick succession. Then he took a break, wrote Mother's Milk, the fourth novel, as a non-Melrose novel, but then realised when he finished it that it, found it was a Melrose novel and he went through and changed everything in his Word document, <laughs> just changed the character names and, hey, presto, it worked. One of the things they are about is uh, Englishness in the terms defined by Sebastian Fawkes in The Fatal Englishman. And there are fatal Englishmen in this, these people who are living very disordered lives by a code of conduct which has been handed down to them by their appalling parents, who in turn it was given to them by their appalling parents. The English upper classes who have had a tradition of superiority, cultural superiority, here stranded in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And there is an account in some hope of a dinner party with Her Royal Highness the Princess Margaret, which is drawn upon by Craig Brown in his wonderful book, um, Mom, darling. Yeah. If anyone who listened to this podcast knows how much I love that book, it's it's like a wonderful reappearance by that awful Princess Margaret. But also, <laughs> it's just the most grisly dinner party. Anyway, I'm going to read you a bit in the run up to the dinner party, where our hero Patrick Melrose, he's not staying at the house. He's not allowed to stay at the house. He's in the annex of the Little Soddington House Hotel. <laughs> So here he is. Patrick arrived downstairs before Johnny and ordered a glass of Perrier at the bar. We should just say that Patrick Melrose, when we met him in the previous book, was in New York nursing and a kind of appalling heroin habit, which was calling, costing him a fortune. He's cleaned up somewhat when we meet him in Volume 3, Some Hope. Patrick arrived downstairs before Johnny and ordered a glass of Perrier at the bar. Two middle-aged couples sat together at a nearby table. The only other person in the bar, a florid man in a dinner jacket, obviously going to Sonny's party, sat with folded arms, looking towards the door. Patrick took his drink over to a small book-lined alcove in the corner of the room. Scanning the shelves, his eyes fell on a volume called The Journal of a Disappointed Man, and next to it, a second volume called More Journals of a Disappointed Man, <laughs> and finally by the same author, a third volume entitled Enjoying Life. <laughs> How could a man who had made such a promising start to his career have ended up writing a book called Enjoying Life? Patrick took the offending volume from the shelf and read the first sentence that he saw. Verily, the flight of a gull is as magnificent as the Andes. Verily, murmured Patrick. <laughs> Hi. Hello, Johnny, said Patrick, looking up from the page. I've just found a book called Enjoying Life. Intriguing, said Johnny, sitting down on the other side of the alcove. I'm going to take it to my room and read it tomorrow. It might save my life. Mind you, I don't know why people get so fixated on happiness, which always eludes them, when there are so many other invigorating experiences available, like rage, jealousy, disgust and so forth. Don't you want to be happy, said Johnny. Well, when you put it like that, smiled Patrick. <laughs> really, you're just like everyone else. Don't push your luck, Patrick warned him. Will you be dining with us this evening, gentlemen? asked a waiter. Yes, replied Johnny, taking a menu and passing one on to Patrick, who was too deep in the alcove for the waiter to reach. I thought he said, 
will you be dying with us, admitted Patrick. <laughs> who was feeling increasingly uneasy about his decision to tell Johnny the facts he had kept secret for 30 years. Maybe he did, said Johnny. We haven't read the menu yet. I suppose the young will be taking drugs tonight, sighed Patrick, scanning the menu. Ecstasy, the non-addictive high, said Johnny. Call me old-fashioned, blustered Patrick, but I don't like the sound of a non-addictive drug. <laughs> Johnny, you- it's sort of like it's like Irvin Welsh written by Anthony Pohl. Anyway, Johnny felt fru- Johnny felt frustratingly engulfed in his old style of banter with Patrick. These were just the sort of old associations that he was supposed to sever. But what could he do? Patrick was a great friend, and he wanted him to be less miserable. Why do you think we're so discontented? Asked Johnny, settling for the smoked salmon. I don't- <laughs> That's such a great line. <laughs> I don't know, lied Patrick. I can't decide between the onion soup and the traditional English goat's cheese salad. (laughs) An analyst once told me I was suffering from a depression on top of a depression. Well, at least you got on top of the first depression, said Johnny, closing (laughs) the menu. (laughs) Exactly, smiled Patrick. I don't think one can improve on the traitor of Strasbourg, whose last request was that he give the order to the firing squad himself. <laughs> so, so if you if that's the sort of thing you like, there are five volumes of Brilliant. that. John, what have you been reading? Well, it couldn't really be much different, I have to say. I've been reading a novel published earlier this year called Folk by Zoe Kilbert. Well, it's interesting. What is it? Is it a novel? Paul Kingsnorth's review of it in The New Statesman said he wasn't sure it was. It's a se- sequence of stories set on an island called Neverness, uh, an imaginary island with a village. Each of the stories, I guess the characters are shared between the stories. Each of them is sort of structured like a tale. It's a lot to do with the ritual and mythology and the folklore of this island. It's, it's very dense. It's definitely not for everybody. There are many people who will look at a story <laughs> called Swirling Clift or Water Bull Bride, or The True Tale of Jack Frost, and say, not for me. But if you're a fan of Ursula Le Guin, or you're a fan of Alan Garner, the book it most reminds me of is a book that we published at Unbound called Tatterdemalion by Sylvia Lindstedt. Very quickly, you become part of the world. I mean, as sort of world-building skills Zoe Gilbert has done. She won uh, for a story called Fishkin Hairskin, in 2014, she won the Costa Short Story Award. It's very dense, beautifully, viscerally kind of written. It sort of sits in some kind of relationship to the Fen, the Daisy Johnson book that I wrote, to Pond by Claire Louise Bennett, to uh, Sarah Hall. It's beautifully written, brilliantly, I think, compelling. I mean, you you find that actually, although it's a little bit difficult to get into, perhaps at first, if you're coming from, as it were, something as, you know, I've been reading, uh, as you know, Dust to the Music of Time (laughs) (laughs) across this year. It ain't like that. No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it has a kind of a crazed uh, intensity and logic, you know. It starts with amazing uh, folklore where there's lots of gorse and the sea salt and, 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 and herring and, you know, it's kind of elemental hairs a figure a lot. It's very, it's very Celtic. I think she's sort of based it on the Isle of Man. There are, I think there are 12, 13 stories in the book, but this is the, one of the longest is called Long Have I Lain Beside the Water. And it was one I really liked. It was about a man called Galashine who lives in a house on the hill and he had lost his first love. She'd slipped into the waterfall and died and was drowned. So he marries her sister 
and then has a daughter and it's the moment of the daughter 16 of coming of age there's a sort of ri- coming of age ritual she disappears he has a sort of long dark night of the soul but then he finds her again and she comes back to the house this is a very typical but very good in a way i guess you're going to like this book if you like this kind of yeah, stuff okay. you're not going to like it if you don't there are no mirrors in galashen's house when he sits at his table his daughter on his left side he tries to enjoy the meat he eats, but tastes only earth. His wine is like brown river water in his mouth. Each meal is a penance. He asks May, that's his daughter, to play for him sometimes. She will be fiddle master after Quail, the best player that Neverness has. They like to walk together along the river and watch the water swirling against the muddy banks. They sit by the willow tree, and Galushin tells his daughter about his first love. May imagines what love will be like, the warmth that will soften the chill in her heart. She lets her father talk as long as he wants. He has endured so many years of silence. When he has finished, she takes her fiddle and stands beneath the willow's waving fronds. While she plays, her fingers pressing into the long neck of bone, Galushin closes his eyes and listens to his lost love calling from the water, calling through the dark. A lot of that. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. That, that sounded like I, it, it wasn't for me. The thing about it is only a writer who's really on top of their game could probably get away with it. And she, I mean, you know, as I say, I've got a soft soft spot for this kind of thing anyway, but she's very, very good. This is a very, very good I novel. saw that our former guests, both uh, Alex Preston and Ben Myers, and ben raved Myers. about this yeah. book, right? And also Paul Kingsnorth. Yeah, I mean, it sort of fits into Paul's sort of, vision of, a, of trying to write about a, a, a world that is not I mean the Sylvia Lindstedt book that the Tattered Amalian was also I've, I got to know that book through Paul through her mm-hmm. um, uh, sending stuff into the Dark Mountain anthologies and but this is this is this is published by Bloomsbury Folk and comes highly recommended time now for an ad this episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Okay, so The Fatal Englishman is a book that came out in 1996, and I remember reading this in Harbour. I have my actual hardback copy with me, the copy that I read 20 years ago. And reading it again, I I still really like it. There are things that I had forgotten, things that I felt differently about. But before we talk about that, we must ask you, Rishi, where and when were you when you first found this book? This is a, a, a formative book for me. It was about 99, 2000 or so that I first encountered it. I'd just finished first degree at university, moved back in with my parents, and I had I was frequenting again Stanmore Library in northwest London, a teenage hangout of mine, which again became a place where I would spend some time in that nether zone of yeah. what the hell do I do with my life. And I'd always had a fondness for the biography section there. I'd discovered many sort of wonderful things, um, Duke Ellington, and just sprung to mind in particular. And I saw this, and I, I think I was intrigued by the title, yeah, more than anything else, the, that combination of Fatal and Englishman. Yeah, yeah. And 
I picked it up, took it home, and I remember racing through it with that sort of grip that you only get from a thriller, almost in, in that sense. And the setup is clear. You know that these three people die. But at the same time, there was this, but how, how, how? And that sense of urgency was almost that the, the first visceral reaction that I had to, had to the book. But what was really surprising to me was the jolts of recognition that I had through each of these stories. From three characters who are very different to me in space and time, and yet I was able to see things that I thought talked to me and talked to where I was in my life mm, at that time. Right, we're going to come back to that. Mm. I want to ask John. Now, John, you hadn't read this before, have you? I hadn't read do you want to tell us? That, do you want to yeah, confess? I want to God, tell, I want to so tell a very... So, I hadn't read it before, and it's been a busy week. We've been launching the website. I discovered that I couldn't get hold of it quickly enough physically. So I did the thing which I don't often do. I did, just downloaded it as a as a as an ebook. And because it's Sebastian folks, and I never really thought through the title of the Fatal English, but I never really thought about it as um, I never read the blurbs. I didn't. I just started reading, and I made the assumption that it was a novel. That it was three <laughs> invented characters, and I, I have to say, I thought it was absolutely brilliant that he had. You know, what an amazing job of having, having, you know, so immersed himself in these three separate worlds, three separate worlds which are kind of emblematic of a certain kind of twentieth-century English experience: a, a painter, a pilot, and a spy. And then I came across in the last story. I suddenly thought. Wolf, it mentions the Wolfenden report because the final character, there are three three characters. Jeremy Wolfenden's father wrote the Wolfenden report. I thought, well, I know the Wolfenden report was a real thing. <laughs> Hang on, maybe this, maybe this isn't a brilliant kind of reconstruction. Maybe this is. I mean, and oddly enough, of course, it turns out that these all three of these mm-hmm. Christopher Wood, Richard Hillary, and Jeremy Wolfenden are all people who have lived and died and all died young, and. Although I had to recalibrate the things that I would have said <laughs> slightly about the brilliance of Sebastian Folks's imagination and how creating fictional characters out of out of real details and real people, uh, I don't have to do that because in fact they were real people. But it it does make what Rishi you... was saying about pace is oh, very interesting, such... right? For the you can read it. It took you till the third section, so that in terms of pacing, it carries you through. <laughs> incredibly gripping considering it's uh, three short biographies. Yeah. We're, we're, I just want to play a clip now. This is Sebastian Falks recorded a few years ago talking about the difference between researching for non-fiction and researching for fiction. The essential point about research is it depends if you're doing something factual, if you're doing something uh, novelistic, something fictional. And um, after Birdsong, I wrote a book called The Fatal Englishman, which was uh, three short biographies, uh, three lives of people uh, who had been like meteors, full of promise and brilliance, but all died young, around 28, 29, 30 years old, from different parts of the 20th century. Um, And so when writing that book, I just wanted to find out everything I possibly could about all those three people, and that meant reading anything they'd written, uh, letters, diaries, so on, published books, uh, talking to friends, people who'd known them, reading other accounts. Of, well, just, uh, I won't go on. It's obvious what reading everything or finding out everything you possibly can consists of. With fiction, 
what you're trying to do is not give the complete story, because that, that would be a history, but what you're trying to give is an authentic feeling of what it was like. So, for instance, when writing Birdsong, um, I wanted to try and feel what the First World War was like for a yeah. soldier in the trench. What you're looking for, really, is, is little clinching details. And, of course, what's interesting about that is I think that is actually one of the <laughs> things that makes the fatal Englishman work in the way you've both just described, mm. is it is those little clinching details, funnily enough, Absolutely. even though it's under the guise of non-fiction. I, I think there's, there's an interesting tension there as well, because he, at certain points, feels ambivalent about the intention that he's actually writing with them through, because I think in the yeah. preface or, or towards the end, there's a note where he actually says, of course, if this was fiction, if I'm paraphrasing now, effectively, I would have smoothed out some of the mm. edges here. And that almost feels like he's admitting to a slight reluctance to actually take these lives as he's found them and the sort of rackety mm. nature of a lot of them and just let them be. It felt like he had to suppress a lot of his novelist urge to, and, to shape things to make them smooth. And yet, as John was saying in terms of John's accidental reading of it, of course it does, but it does work novelistically mm. because the, his, his aim in the book is to compare and contrast three English lives at different points of the 20th century, and as the title suggests, imply the ways in which Englishness was fatal for a certain kind of young man growing yeah. up mm -hmm. in that era. Yeah. Before we go any further, I'm just going to read the blurb, which will do, for a change, will do two things for us. It'll do the thing it always does, which is we can have a bit of fun um, <laughs> seeing if we like the blurb or not. But also it will give us a short potted biography of each character, and then, uh, Rishi, I'm going to ask you to read a bit from the, the first one. So this is the blurb. This is the original hardcover blurb from 1996. This is a book about three extraordinary lives. Christopher Wood, a beautiful young Englishman, decided to be the greatest painter the world had ever seen. He went to Paris in 1921 at the age of 19. By day he worked at his studies. By night he attended the parties of the Beaumont. He knew Picasso, worked for Diaghilev, and was a friend of Jean Cocteau. In the last months of his 29-year life, he fought a ravening opium addiction to succeed in claiming a place in the history of English painting. Richard Hillary, confident, handsome and argumentative, flew spitfires in the Battle of Britain before being shot down and horribly burned. He underwent several operations by the legendary plastic surgeon A.H. McIndoe. His account of his experiences, The Last Enemy, made him famous but not happy. He begged to be allowed to return to flying and died mysteriously in a night training operation, aged 23. Jeremy Wolfenden was born in 1934, the son of Jack, later Lord Wolfenden. Charming, generous and witty, he was by common consent the cleverest Englishman of his generation, but left all souls to become a hack reporter. At the height of the Cold War, he was sent by the Daily Telegraph to Moscow. Here, his louche private life made him the, and that is an understatement, <laughs> made him the plaything of the intelligence services. A terrifying sequence of events ended in Washington, where he died at the age of 31. Sebastian Fawkes has brought to this ambitious triple biography all the compassion and narrative power that characterised Birdsong. <laughs> so our friends at Hutchinson were there before yeah, yeah. us. And I'd just like to add so that Sebastian Fawkes' author biog 
1996. What you said, John, is quite right. We, you know, Sebastian Fawkes is a, a, a significant figure on the cultural landscape, partly because of the success of Birdsong and partly because of his appearances on radio and, mm. and, and television. And this, is, this is how he self-described in 1996. Sebastian Fawkes was a journalist and reviewer for 14 years and is now a full-time writer. His novels will include The Girl at the Leon Door, A Fool's Alphabet, and the best-selling bird song. He is married with two children and lives in France. <laughs> there you go. It's a, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what his autobiography says now. but um, Anyway, Rishi, could you read us a, yes. a, a little bit from the Christopher Wood? Yes, this is from, uh, I think, roughly around... 1922 or so. So Wood has left England and gone to Paris to seek both training and a wider entree into that Parisian artistic world. And he's back on a visit to London. It had happened rather suddenly, in a way, but now there was no denying that Christopher Wood, who had left England in 1921, with nothing more than a perverse and earnest ambition, had returned as an artist. His success was at this stage only with other artists and not yet with the public. But he valued their opinion more than that of dealers or buyers. His position was roughly comparable to that of a writer who has had his first book accepted for publication, however minor and however embarrassingly recollected in later years. It is a breakthrough. Wood handled his success badly. He was so afraid of losing it that he was superstitious, even of admitting it to himself. This fear could be quelled only by little rushes of conceit. There are one or two modern French people, two painters amongst them, he told his mother, who think I am already a better painter than anyone in England except John, who doesn't come into it at all and who is too old-fashioned now. He had said it. And perhaps it was better to be frank. A young painter could not be faithful to both Picasso and Augustus John. It's so good in terms of condensing time, place oh, and information. Incredible. But it, that you can sort of see just from that reading that this is a novelistic voice. I'm sorry, yes. it's not the mm. voice of um, Michael Holroyd or... It, it really doesn't matter that it's, it's real. If it's just the, the skill with which he kind of marshals his material you feel that he's you know, he, he obviously has done the work and, and understands the, the the three milieu in which the the, the the three young men lived but he does wear that lightly it's you mm. know you don't feel at any point and this has not got footnotes this has not got a bibliography he did he even says slightly kind of archly at the end he said well i used i read lots of books for this but i didn't write them down I didn't write down the books that I. So yes, I mean, he, it's that's all, funny. It's almost yeah. like he's he's intentionally not wanting to write an academic biography. Also, so you have to ask, yeah. what is this? What yeah, is yeah, the book? Yeah, yeah. But I, also, each chapter, each biography is built on a different type of source material. So the Christopher Wood section is built around Christopher Wood's letters to his mother, for the most part. Yeah. That's the prime yes. source material. The Richard Hillary section is built around. Hillary's book, The Last Enemy. And the Wolfenden section is built mostly around interviews with journalists Sebastian Fawkes knew, yeah. who, like Neil <laughs> Asherson and Philip French, French, who knew yeah. Wolfenden, but also because there were no other real sources of yeah. information about Jeremy Wolfenden. He left, the, the Wolfenden of the three left nothing behind. 
the most brilliant. Yeah, very little trace, it appears. And um, I think there's a point at which, you know, Fawkes has asked the Telegraph to call up any articles that he may have written during his periods in Moscow and Washington, and they had disappeared in a move or what yeah, have they you as well. Yeah, in a move, right? So even his cuttings from the yeah. Telegraph, though his parents or his family had some of them, but they'd gone. I, John's point about yeah, the marshalling of the sources, I think, is, is very apposite as well, because what you get is, and it was unexpected to me uh, yeah, rereading it, is the absolute certainty of the judgments. There's absolutely no room for any other interpretation about what was going on in these lives at any particular point. No room for, you know, well, it might have been this or it might have been that. Yeah. He, he absolutely delivers a crystal view on what was going on in each of these men's minds at any given moment. And it's delivered with an almost, partly because of the style, but it's almost an unarguable force to it. And you don't feel at all impelled to actually stop and say, well, hold on a minute, how do you actually know? You just you are swept along with this absolute certainty. I found a piece by uh, about this book by Jane Gardam here, yeah. uh, Jane Gardam, who we love, as you know, and she says a really interesting thing here. She says, "When I first read this book, I felt that Fawkes, much moved by his subjects' lives, was still feeling his way to explaining the reason for writing about them. He had wanted to call it the artist, the airman, and the spy, but then thought that sounded like a novel. A novel tempts towards conclusions." I also remember not liking the present title. <laughs> Englishman, for a start. Fawkes is firm that he doesn't mean British and says the two are not interchangeable but explains no further. Yet the Englishness of the three is not the word that comes to mind. Wood, born in the last gleam of England's golden age, made off abroad at 19 and was later proud to call himself the first English painter to have made it in France. Brackets. Not quite true. <laughs> Hillary was an Australian born with an Australian wanderlust and Wolfenden, a slightly sinister-looking young Rue, was a polyglot. He read Greek at three. Fatal is also puzzling. Does Fawkes mean that Englishness was fatal? Oddly, I had misremembered the title as the moral Englishman, which would have surprised all three. <laughs> and she goes on, but she goes on to say how much she likes the book because yeah. it slightly plays with your expectations she, all the way through. She, yeah, you're fundamentally talking about three people who had this overwhelming urge to try and remake themselves in some ways, who who were very definite that they weren't going to accept the condition, the conditions that they were born into. And so they, mm. they had to go somewhere, do something to discover themselves in some way. So in Kit Wood's case, it's go to Paris and reject the, the sort of bourgeois, um, you know, conditions that yeah, he, he becomes born properly into. bohemian. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, Hillary almost in a sense has to, yeah, although he never considered himself Australian, there was, it seems like there was something there that felt that he had to prove that he was more English than English in, in this forced bearing and nobility through the immense suffering that he had, but also actually his reasons for wanting to fight the war so badly. And in Wolfenden's case, you, there's clearly some fundamental rebelling against mm. the father and how Jack Wolfenden had been so successful in terms of you know, coming from the provincial Yorkshire background to become the establishment figure and doyen that he did. And in a sense, each of these three projects of remaking these lives ultimately failed. They ultimately mm. spun apart and unraveled almost in a sense because they were 
grasping too far, they were reaching beyond their talents, although in Wolfenden's case that's clearly not the case. But you know, this fundamental mystery that you know, that you're left asking, how did people with so much manage to throw it away? And if we start which, to read which that... Which we might say, it, it, that exact phrase is why how we might look at the empire, depending on how you would view the empire, that the, the, the dissolution of the empire is built into its a flawed structure which, which collapses in on itself. And it, the thing it reminded me of very strongly was a book that we both read around the um, Ian Fleming episode that we did a few months ago, which was Simon Winder's book about James Bond and about Mm. Ian Fleming and about how Bond represents. And then, of course, one of the other books that Sebastian, one of the other novels Sebastian Fawkes has uh, written is that he wrote one of the James Bond novels about 10 years ago. He he wrote a book called Devil May Care, which he wrote in about six weeks, to his great credit, giving himself the exact same time frame that Ian Fleming used to. You've got to to admire his... um, Sorry, John. This is from Fawkes on Fiction, Sebastian Fawkes writing about um, how he prepared to write his Bond novel. I think it. I think again that comp- that thing of compression is very interesting. It's very short. Eventually, I decided I would read all the Bond books in the order in which they had been published. If I liked them and had an idea of how I could add another one to the body of twelve, then I would do it. I didn't expect them to have lasted at all well, but I think I was only about forty pages into Moonraker when I knew that I wanted to say yes. What impressed me about the books was a single thing: jeopardy. You feared for the safety of the hero all the time. Here was a man with a single underpowered handgun, the Beretta, which, as a gunsmith told Fleming, was a, quote, lady's gun, and not a very nice lady at that. (laughs) Soft shoes, a short-sleeved shirt, and really only his wits and fists to defend himself against enemies more numerous, better armed, more cynical, and more powerful than himself. But he had one other thing, cruelty. While blindly patriotic and essentially fair-minded, Bond would, if necessary, do ruthless things to protect himself and the national interest. There was the thrilling sense that we were being given a privileged look into the world of those nameless men who unofficially made it safe for us to sleep at night. We did not approve of what Bond did, necessarily. But it was not his or our fault that other people were so scheming, so power crazed, <laughs> and so murderously hostile towards us. If Bond had occasionally to be a bastard, then we would grimly acquiesce because we live in troubled times and he was our bastard. It didn't occur to me at this stage that I would end up one day writing about Bond as a snob. Hero, yes. Villain, if he had to be. Lover, with relish but also snob. Now, I think, again, that is, that is a tremendously... That sounds like it was easy to write, and perhaps it was easy for Sebastian Fawkes to write. It is not easy to write with that much clarity and focus, in my opinion, anyway. I, and just to pick up on an interesting thing in that as well, I mean, the undertow that's there, of course, again, to to dial into this post-imperial moment is that why are they being so nasty to us as a country geopolitically we've given the world all these marvelous things and yet they're still being mean to us and cruel to us and isn't that jolly unfair 
And and often you feel that um, a lot of attempts to grapple with the hugeness that is you know the legacy of, of the British Empire can often fall into that sort of self-pitying, you know, relatively unreflective mode. Um, and I think what's interesting about the Fatal Englishman that you know in its relatively coded way it starts to suggest that actually we can and should be slightly more clear-sighted about what the ledger actually yeah. is. The second section of the book is about Richard Hillary. And Rishi, rather than ask you to know, rather than ask you to read from it, um, we have an audio clip of Richard Hillary oh. reading from his book, The Last oh, Enemy. Wonderful. He would have been about 21 years old when this was recorded. The book was written during the Second World War. And here he is describing a dogfight in the Battle of Britain which didn't end very well for the author. Just below me, and to my left, I saw what I'd been praying for. A Messerschmitt climbing and away from the sun. I clo closed in to 200 yards and from slightly to one side gave him a two-second burst. Red flame shot upwards and he spiralled out of sight. At that moment... I felt a terrific explosion which knocked the control stick from my hand and the whole machine quivered like a stricken animal. In a second, the cockpit was a mass of flame. I reached up to open the hood. It wouldn't move. I tore off my straps and managed to force it back. But this took time, and when I dropped back into the seat and reached for the stick in an effort to turn the plane onto its back, the heat was so intense that I could feel myself going. I remember thinking, so this is it. I'm putting both my hands up to my eyes. Then I passed out. I regained consciousness free of the machine and falling rapidly. I pulled the ripcord of my parachute and checked my descent with a jerk. Looking down, I saw that my left trouser leg was burnt off, that I was going to fall into the sea, and that the English coast was deplorably far away. Deplorably. Isn't that amazing? That, uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing that the book is about is war. Uh, in, in its various manifestations, Wood is the generation, very Delta-field-like, who's, you know, his generation at school were, the, the names were read out of the, of the people yes. who have fallen, and he escapes into the sort of the demi-monde of Paris in the 20s, and that's that feeling of, 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 of people in, having to enjoy themselves, and the opium and the, and the release. Hillary is obviously... A Spitfire pilot, he's you know, and he's horribly uh, disfigured, and and ends up wanting to go back. I mean, obsessed mm. with wanting to yeah. go back, and that ultimately leads to his death. And Jerry Wolfenden is Cold War. He's a yeah, kind of cold. cold it's, it's a sort of mm. Cold War. He finds himself inadvertently kind of being used as a sort of a, a patsy by the by the yeah, and the Secret Service. Uh, yeah, and there's an interesting point because Wolfenden, being one of the most brilliant students of his generation was on the Navy's Russian translation course, which you know, was effectively the clearinghouse for all the you know, all the bright people, um, pre-national service and you know, filleting out th those sorts of talents. And there's a lovely section when the Navy suddenly realise, of course, that this training is utterly redundant for the new style of war yeah. that is going to be mm -hmm. fought. And so you, know, you suddenly see these assumptions that shift through as the nature of warfare changes. And, and do you think that the fatalness of, of the title, which uh, Jane Garden sort of slightly 
takes issue with is it is it that the because she says, is it that Englishness itself, is, 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 that a, is it a fatal condition? Well, I mean, you, I guess, you know, everything is a fatal condition in one way or another. But is, there something, is that the idea of the, of the end of empire, of the, of, the, of the changing of the world order, that somehow, because it's full of institutions, isn't it? It's, mm. full, of, it's full of, you know, public schools, uh, Oxbridge, the army. Yeah. Um, so the, all the institutions that have sort of been the vehicles the, that have underpinned the empire, in some ways, this book subtly kind of shows you that they're no longer producing human beings, even when they appear to be as gifted and as and as incredibly uh, blessed. I mean, you know, none of these people have, have in their in their childhoods, at least, are struggling with with you know fi- there's financial difficulty. I guess in Christopher Wood's case, when he's a painter, but you know, they are they are privileged people. Who can, for some reason, can't turn that privilege into in, into into lives that that work or that last very long? I think it suggests a deeper unraveling because uh, folks make a great play of the fact that, say, Wood's desire to become an artist starts during World War One, and that coincides with a period of ill health while he's, he's a, a while he's, he's a teenager. Yeah. Mm. Um, and there's almost this sense of saying even if you weren't directly affected by the events, there was still some form of shadow. And it was, and it is, inescapable. What I thought was really interesting um, is the way Fawkes says at the beginning of the book that it's not just, as in Birdsong, where you're talking about to be English is to be doomed on a mass scale, but there's something about Englishness which runs through the culture from Keats onwards, the model of the Englishman who is too beautiful and brilliant to live, who must yes. cough themselves to death or must. And he, he draws a line through from Keats. You could have written this book. Here's the thing. You could have written this book not about these three characters, but let me give you an alternative three. Keats, Wilfred Owen, who is mentioned, and Nick Drake would be the yes, third one. Absolutely. And in fact, Fawkes was approached by the Drake yeah. estate in the 1990s to, um, to write about Nick Drake. And Fawkes said Drake fits this template perfectly, except perhaps... Drake reached the apex of his talent in a way that that um, Wood was just beginning to, and certainly the others probably did not. And I, I think the one point at which folks gets a little judgmental is actually Wood's um, avoidance of any uh, awareness of the tumult of the 1920s, that he's in and around. Um, and almost to sort of suggest it's a dereliction of his duty as he develops as an artist that he is so unaware of mm. what's going on in contemporary events. And that, so as much as he's saying war is this psychic scar, actually you become richer and deeper as a human if you are at least cognizant and aware of it. And I think at some yeah, level he's, he almost penalises Wood for being so focused on his development as an artist and only seeing pretty much no further than his studio or the tours of the Mediterranean that he does, that there's a, there's a little bit of, I'm going to tick you off for not being mm. plugged and in. And yet if you didn't have that, what animates the book, as you said, John, it's not like reading a drier writer at work, is it? What animates the book is the personality of the the author at work. And what I like about the way he's done it is he doesn't draw cheesy 
sociological connections that the, the, there are resonances between the three stories that definitely help you see that it's it's one book but he doesn't come to any pat conclusions i think when i read it 20 years ago i enjoyed it more actually as a kind of a, a three anthems for doomed youth mm. as an account mm. of, of the the rise and fall of these people and i can see how in narrative terms to a writer that story is appealing you're telling the same story three times john did you find that reading it you know novelistically did uh, you feel that there were so when you read the second the richard hillary biography were you thinking oh, that's interesting he's yeah i guess so i mean i contrasting what, what i what i thought was that um that you, that, that, that that he'd picked if you're going to take three big 20th century kind of themes or uh, milieu, then, you know, the artistic scene of the 1920s where you've got this massive explosion of modernism and Picasso and Cocteau and, and surrealism and, you know, that's... And then to have an English painter who I hadn't heard of <laughs> in the middle of it all... It just seemed like, and then you've got the war, and you've got to, do, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the war? Yeah. Well, you go for the, in a way, you go for the, the most heroic, you know, the Spitfire pilot, the, and the, the, he, he's brilliant on the whole on why the Spitfire was a good plane and how yes. cold it was up in the mm -hmm. cockpits, and so all that you feel this is novelistic detail. This isn't, um, this isn't a biography. This is, mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the Cold War. You've got spying. You've got Philby McLean. You've got brilliant uh, academic. You know, the ha take that academic brilliance and what do you do with it? Absolutely nothing. Man drink drinking yourself yeah. to death. So I, f I do. I do feel that it's. It, it's funny if you invert it. I, I I admired what he was doing when I thought it was fiction, but I <laughs> I, I admire it in a kind of reverse way. Absolutely, when it, I know that it's not fiction I, I, because I yeah. because you could have made. So you could have disfigured the narratives by trying to make them to say too much. It's, I mean, he's, he gently tries to tease out what's going on with Hillary because Hillary was pretty famous yes. um, during his lifetime. And his book, you know, The Last, the Last Enemy, became a, a kind of emblematic of a sort of heroic, you know, like Douglas Bader, you oh, know. Yeah. He would, this is, and it's, as he's got pains to point out, not a very good book. Yeah. Well, no, he says that's not fair. Not, no, that's he not says fair. he says it it doesn't quite come off, off yeah. but there are passages within it which are very good. Yeah. I think the thing the thing that I think this book is so interesting. Uh, I think I thought this twenty years ago. I think it again now uh, because it's a hybrid of exactly the type mm. you're talking about, Johnny. It isn't straight biography. It clearly isn't fiction, and yet it's some interesting mixture yeah. of the two. And that's probably there are two reasons why people don't talk about this book. The first is this must be Sebastian Falk's least successful book mm. because it doesn't really fit. You know, it's not fiction, and it doesn't Which quite live biography. We, we were kind of so interested to talk exactly. About. But the other reason is, forgive me, because it's by Sebastian Falk's. You know, people think they know what Sebastian Fawkes is about. He's very present on um, radio and television. Um, if you haven't read Birdsong, you still will be familiar with Birdsong. And I wonder whether that counts against the quirk, I hate the word quirky, but the, the sort of the lesser known parts of a, a writer's back catalogue. Um, one of the things that happens if you are a famous writer in this country is you get to appear on Pointless Celebrities. 
either as a guess <laughs> or, or in this case, as a round. Here is a round from Pointless about Sebastian Fawkes. Here it comes. We gave 100 people 100 seconds to name as many Sebastian Fawkes novels as they could. Sebastian Fawkes novels, Richard. Yeah, any full-length novel written and published by Sebastian Fawkes prior to May 2011, please. No short stories or collections or anthologies, just his full-length novels. OK, now then, Dean Colin, you go first this time. Well, I think this is going to be a fairly short round, then, I'm afraid, because uh, we, 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 neither of us know any Sebastian Fawkes novels. Not written anything at all. Um, I, I can't think of even... A Day at the Seaside. A name. I don't know. A Day at the Seaside. <laughs> no idea. No idea. Pat and Tony, Sebastian Fawkes novel. It's going to be extremely short round, cos we don't know one either. <laughs> <laughs> can't even guess at one. I don't know. Murder. A Day at the Seaside and Murder. <laughs> the subject is murder. OK. Ah. So, Dean Colin, A Day at the Seaside by Sebastian Fawkes. Let's see if that's right. Anybody is, let's see how many people thought that was right. No. What about Murder by Sebastian Fawkes? Let's see if that's right. Anybody is, let's see how many people said it. <laughs> OK. Sorry, Sebastian. Sorry, Sebastian's family. <laughs> the, thing about, the best thing about that clip is it proves that when uh, average British people think about what novels might be called, they're called either A Day at the Seaside or Murder. <laughs> and, of course, you, you combine the two, you've got an absolute win. Exactly. <laughs> Publishers who are listening get on it. We should just, I should just say something about Birdsong. Yeah. John, have you read it? No. Have you read and it? And I haven't either. And I should confess at this point I've read none and no other Sebastian Fawkes book. Well, that's amazing, yeah. I, I've read and loved years ago The Girl at Leon Dor. Um, I think it's... And I've, I've sort of... I've paddled around for a bit in Charlotte Grey. I, I, my, my history with Birdsong... It was 94 Birdsong, wasn't it? Yeah, my history with Birdsong is uh, basically that it's the book that I recommended more than any other when I was a bookseller. Yeah. Uh, but I only read it about two weeks ago. <laughs> and uh, and um, the thing about it was, it was as good as I said it was <laughs> in ignorance 25 years ago. Yeah. But this is why you should always, you know, surprise by read books. Yeah. It was different to what I thought it was going to be. And the things that are fascinating about it and are a great literary achievement are the thing I was talking about earlier, the, the portrayal of life in the trenches yeah. as the result of mechanized mass slaughter of a, of a Holocaust that precedes the Holocaust with which the, the word is synonymous. There's a lovely thing in that Jane Garden piece as well, where she talks about the sort of, again, that pre-Lapsarian vision of village England without war memorials, when she's thinking of when when the, these men were young, all through, the, you know, you didn't, you hadn't been through through the, the, the trauma, the absolute trauma of two massive world wars. And it it, it is, I still, I, I still think that, Englishness as a concept, it's always in relation to those two traumas. You can't really kind of, you can't, yeah. and I, I would say to the, and also to the, the bigger, and uh, the other trauma, which is empire and the end of empire and, and, and the, the discovery, which is after all what we're talking about at the moment, uh, that 
Empire might hey might not have turned out to be such a gloriously uh, positive mm. and, and, and beneficial thing and as we as we once thought. As I, I, think, think, yeah. I think it's an even better Sebastian Fawkes novel than a day at the seaside. <laughs> And, uh, and it's and it's and it's soon to be televised sequel murder. murder. But I do think I think that's that's part of the reason why I've never read anything else by him. I feel there's a certain, you know, almost in a sense, distillation of how perfect the themes are that I don't want to encounter I mean, anything I, that people, might start to people in the Random House marketing <laughs> department with their heads in their hands, <laughs> weeping. I, I don't I because I've never read Stefan uh, Zweig. I don't. Haven't you? No. Wow. So I just haven't. So I'm being, you know, being. No, honest. we. Are you, are you, <laughs> I'm nothing. I've been struggling all week to try and think of people. It, I mean, it's very, it's it's very unlike anything else. It, it's it's like three very very brilliant essays by mm. some. Yes. Uh, but it um and I you know that kind of uh, the sort of biographies that, that don't get read. Now, Javier Marias wrote a. A, a, a selection yeah, of biographies. Yeah. I'm, I'm struggling to, to think of, of comparisons. A, a closer contemporary parallel I was thinking of was Miranda Carter's The Three Emperors. But when it comes down to it, where does it live in the bookshop? It can't live on the novel's shelf because yeah. it's not a novel. And where does it live in biography? Yeah. Well, it must go under Sebastian Falks, but because it can't go yeah, under yeah, any yeah, no, one I, of the I subjects, mean, yeah. right? So, or history, but where does it live in history? 20th century history? Well, I suppose so. I mean, I mean, it's, that's it's, its brilliance it's, and I, its flaw. It's a, it's a genre defeating book. That's mm, the problem. Yeah. Which is why we love it. Which is why we yeah. love it. <laughs> um, and we love it, but we've got to stop. Thank you to Rishi. Thank you to Alana, who is, has done brilliantly standing yeah, in for she a, has done brilliantly. Nikki, Nikki Birch. To our, uh, to, to Unbound and obviously to our uh, neatly turned out sponsor, Spoke. <laughs> Thank you. If, in fact, you would like to sponsor an episode of Backlisted, the way to do it is to visit our website, which I can now say, backlisted.fm, and uh, hit the sponsor tab. It'll explain to you how and, and why and all that. Uh, you'll also, of course, on the website, as we keep saying, find, uh, you know, uh, all the books we mentioned and links to buy them. Further reading. Of course, for, for those of you who want to go into more depth in the subject and tasteful merchandise. Hopefully there's going to be a further tasteful merchandise to come. Uh, other, uh, other of our greatest slogans. Uh, well, I've already, I know that several people have wanted, but have you read the journals on, on a t-shirt? But we um, don't, we, you know, we don't want to become victims of our own sad catchphrase. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you uh, get your podcasts from. Uh, thank you very much, people who've been leaving uh, star ratings and reviews, particularly in the States. There have been two or three lovely, lovely reviews yeah, that really, people have left. I mean, really, we do read them, and we, it, it's, uh, it, it's cockles are definitely very much warmed by them, so thank you. Especially the gentleman in America who, 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 who said... Uh, he can't move around his flat now because of all the books he's had of his apartment because <laughs> of all the there's books he's had to buy. There's a lot uh, of people complaining know. on Twitter about the fact that we're, we're, <laughs> we're, added, we're yeah, literally that we're gateway drug to a large pile of unread books by their <laughs> bedside. Uh, of course, we're still on Twitter. We're still on Facebook and boundless, but our new permanent home is backlisted.fm. Do visit us and uh, let us know what you think. Yep. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight until then. Goodbye. Let's do a day at the seaside <laughs> on the next episode. We've actually got a book. Marie Phillips is doing a book called Ooh I, Ooh, I Do Like to Be. 
and there you go, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, right. it's a book about Shakespeare, and the, the shout line is to, to B and B or not to B and B. Thank you. choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.